This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Blogs and commentary waiting for you at 900CHML.com. We'd like you to jump into the fray. Did you watch? Did you watch? Did you watch? Did you watch? Did you watch the debate last night? Was it anything you didn't predict? I could have, you know, I could have, I could have easily like written my blog yesterday in the in the middle of the afternoon and just in commentary and let it go because I exactly what I thought was going to happen happened. And what happened was uh, Trump was terribly unprepared. He tried to go with the same old lines. We're going to make America great again. It's going to be so beautiful. (laughs) And you can't do that in a 90 minute debate. You need a little more. You need a little more steam than that. It's like doing a talk radio show for three hours. You're talking for three hours. And in this case, an hour and a half. So you got to know your stuff. And I thought this would happen. I thought this would happen. And I remember asking lots of poli sci professors this uh, before, the, you know, long before the debates. Once the debates roll around, Hillary's going to kill him with content and he's going to try to sell the same couple of lines and it's not going to work. And that's exactly what happened. And then he got frustrated. And here's what I saw. I saw a guy that was panting, a guy that was really dry mouthed, a guy that, uh, he, he was panicking. He was grasping at straws. When he was answer, ask a, asked a simple question, he gave long, drawn-out questions instead of keeping them short and getting to the point. He often interrupted the moderator, which you don't do. And when he did interrupt the moderator and stomp all over him, I thought the moderator could have been a bit more aggressive. When he did stomp all over him, uh, and get his attention and manage to, to get the floor back, he just sort of repeated the same things over and over again. So I, I just think he did not do his homework. He was unprepared. He was unprepared for the job interview. And it doesn't matter what the job interview is. If you're not prepared, you don't get it. And that's what I saw. Hillary, on the other hand, uh, was Hillary. Diplomacy and did everything right. Didn't get sucked in. I remember a couple of times saying to my wife, oh, pull back, Hillary, don't get sucked in. A couple of times she did, but for the most part, she stayed out of the mess and just sat there with a smile. And when he would answer and she would just smile, you could tell it just irritated him to no end. So what happened? Exactly what we thought would happen. And it's going to be fascinating to see how he pulls that out in round two with the second debate and 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 how he moves forward with it. Uh, we've got lots of people we're going to talk with, uh, including coming up James Campbell, a distinguished professor in the Department of Political Science, University of Buffalo. We'll talk uh, to him coming up after the news at 1230. Alyssa Freeman is with us here now, pris, uh, principal at Alyssa PR Communications, uh, also uh, occasionally does stuff for the Huffington Post, Canada.com uh, and PR Daily, and is with us now. Hello, Alyssa. How are you today? Oh, my goodness. You know I love to hear your intro Scott I'm fine <laughs> isn't it what you thought it would be though you know what it is and then you know it it was and then it wasn't and then it was does that make any sense no not really but go ahead okay well first thing I'd like to jump on is the issue of preparedness and uh, I think that that is what really sort of put the nail in uh, Trump's coffin in this whole debate yeah and I think that whether you were for him or whether you were totally against him, you, know, you come to a debate, you respect your base, you respect your voters and your populace, and you prepare. 
You know, when I was watching the CNN aftermath and they had a group of um, Floridians there that were undecided, you know, I would say out of the 20 of them, you know, only four were swayed over to kept on to Trump's side. But of those who were swayed, they said that they were kind of disgusted that he had all this time to prepare for his debate and then chose not to. You know, when you're a businessman and you think that, okay, listen, I know my stuff. I'm just going to walk into that meeting and do my thing. I honestly think he thought that that was going to be okay for this debate. But at the 30-minute mark, that's when it caught up with him. Yeah, that's exactly my thought entirely, Alyssa. He he did fine going toe-to-toe for the first uh, few minutes, and then she just eventually wore him out. She killed him with content. You know, they both kind of fell into their their regular roles, uh, I would say, at the outset. The first thing uh, that I noticed that when Hillary made her opening statement, I mean, it was textbook. It was almost too textbook. It looked like she had memorized it. There must have been 50 policy mandates in that. And I'm thinking, whoa, whoa, stop, 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 stop. The last thing that Hillary wants to do is sound like the policy wonk and yeah. sort of the untouchable and unrelatable candidate that they're touting her to be. And then Trump comes in, and he be and he's Trump. Yeah. And he's saying, okay, well, no, that's ridiculous. And and to, and then I sort of sat there thinking, uh oh. For the first ten minutes, I really thought, uh oh. <laughs> yeah. But then she did get under his skin, and 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 it was not a secret that she was going to try and do that. Every news report, every yeah. commentator, every pundit was on the TV and the radio and on the web saying. She needs to get underneath his skin. And honestly, I didn't know if that was going to happen. But then she talked about his net worth, and that's when he fell apart. Boy, the whole thing on his uh, tax structure, and, and well, here, let's, let's listen to this clip okay. of Trump on, uh, do you have this, Jacob, on his uh, tax returns? I will release my tax returns against my lawyer's wishes. When she releases her 33,000 emails that have been deleted. He did, uh, he did do a lot of bait and switch, didn't he? He did do a lot of bait and switch, but she also did what we call in the profession block and bridge. And so when he did announce, the, he did come up with the email narrative. She goes, you're right. I made a mistake. I won't yeah. let that happen again. Let's move on. But he couldn't move on. Now, as a seasoned debater would have been able to take that and twist and turn it until the moderator says, okay, you know, uncle, enough. But he is not a seasoned debater. And you can tell by as the debate wore on, he got into what people on social media were starting to call word salad. And word salad is just, it's just like a salad. You put a bunch of ingredients into a bowl and you mix it all up. Well, at the end of the debate, I had no idea what he was saying. I know. He was. Honestly, I don't even think he knew what he was saying. Yeah. And I'll tell you one very telling thing, Scott. After a debate, what happens is that the, each candidate has their spin people, and they go into the spin room in front of all the reporters. And what they do is they hit home or try to clarify points that they want clarified so that the news or the reporting sort of goes, goes their way. Well, never in the history of a debate has the actual candidate walked back into the spin room, him or herself, well, it's really just been himself, hasn't it, himself, and tried to make that spin and tried to correct it. And where he wanted to correct it was the notion of federal taxes, whether or whether or not he paid them. And he was even joking. Well, I haven't paid federal taxes yet. Well, that's because I'm smart. 
Yeah, yeah, that went over like a lead balloon. Uh, what other? What, what else I thought was telling was body language, uh, especially at the end of the debate, when uh, the family members and whoever join people on stage, uh, and and they start shaking hands and such. Clear, uh, the Clinton family immediately went into the crowd and started shaking hands. It left sort of the Trump standing on the stage, not really knowing what to do, and then they just sort of exited stage right. You know, um, that's a really good point. The other thing about uh, the optics, and I'd love to concentrate on that for a minute with this debate. This is the one debate watching it. Just let's talk about watching this on TV, where normally you see a long shot, and you see the full length of the person behind the podium, and you sort of get the whole feel of what the staging is like and what the separation between the two candidates is like and the way that they're looking at each other. This had very little of that. What it did have was the split screen. Yeah. And the split screen was people were on, on Twitter were saying, oh, is this an SNL sketch? You know, we're watching Saturday Night Live here. Yeah. And no, but that's what people thought about it. And what the split screen does is this. It does not allow you for one minute to think that the camera is not on you. Mm. So Hillary may have been looking down at her notes, or you saw that she was writing and taking notes, and, you know, as a debater usually does. You know, there are times when, A, Donald was looking at Hillary thinking, mm, I've got to look into that point she's talking about. Or B, smirking and eye-rolling. Oh, wasn't that effective, though? Uh, I mean, you know, my and goodness. Then, and then there was, and I knew this would happen, the, it, the sniff. Yeah. The sniff actually had its own hashtag 10 minutes in. What's with that? You know, he said, first of all, you know, blame, 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 Donald Trump, blame, blame. I think it's the way they put the microphone on me. (laughs) He said, did they do that to everybody or was it just me? And it's a tick. So a lot of people were speculating, what does a sniff mean? Does he really have a goal? Does he have asthma? Does he sniff when he's about to say something that is not true? Hmm. So the sniff became this whole narrative that really, if you're a political candidate, you know, debating your policies in front of what is essentially the world, the sniff becomes a bit of a joke. What uh, I was talking to a professor in regard to the the Kennedy-Nixon debate, and remember we were talking yesterday, those that saw it on TV thought it went one way, those that heard it on radio uh, thought it went the other. I don't think that would have been the case in this scenario. No, I don't think it would have been the case. And I think that once she really baited him about his taxes and about his supposed net worth and about him not really supporting um, Americans the way all those other taxpaying Americans do, he really, he really lost his train of thought. So every point he tried to hit home never really hit home. For example, yeah. he talked about jobs. Well, he said, Ford is fleeing. They're leaving to Mexico. Well, in about 10 minutes, Ford had put out uh, an ad or a meme that appeared on social media that says on, using the split-screen motif, actually, on the left side it says, Ford is leaving for Mexico, Trump. On the right side, the Ford logo saying, no, we're not. What Talk a little bit about fact-checking, because, man, it seems that now, and you're talking about CNN, who, you know, infamous for their countdown clocks and such, now have fact-checking uh, people that it's hilarious that in today's politics you actually have to have a fact-checking person. Uh, but th- this seems to really be going against him as everything he spews out, including at the moderator, arguing whether facts were right or, or, or wrong. How is this going to damage him, or can he just use the method of speaking louder in order to convince people that his facts are true? Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I have to say, to your latter point, I often think that if people are not going to dig deep, and most people will not, and his base will likely not. 
they, oh, Ford is leaving for Mexico, then that must be true. I better vote for Trump so I don't lose my job. You know, will people actually dig into it? I certainly hope so, because an informed electorate is one that is able to make, you know, the decision that is right for them. And I noticed that on the on your website, on the CHML website, there were a number of facts that you had brought to light that were on both from Clinton and both from Trump that needed checking. And also the uh, the AP politics, if anybody wants to go on that website, there are about 34 facts there, most of them on the Trump side, that were untrue. So I think what we it comes down to is, is the bluster enough? Does he really need to go? Does he just need to get through these debates and say what he wants to say and land the points that he thinks his base wants to hear? Yes, there is absolutely some truth to that. The question is, is will, will those undecided voters, will they dig into the issues or will they really want to understand what Trump is saying or what Clinton is saying, or will they stay on the surface and not go behind the headline? And if they don't go behind the headline, this election could go in a much different way. Uh, there were times when I was putting my hands over my face. It, well, it, yeah. It, it, was, it was embarrassing. <laughs> it, 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 it was. It was embarrassing. And, and then at the end, he, he just... He was just flailing at everything, it, it appeared, uh, and, and talked about Hillary's experience and its bad experience. And just he, he, he was just like a, a kid who he runs out of facts, so he just call, starts calling people names. What does he have to do? How does he have to change his approach? How will the dynamic change for round two, do you think? You know, first of all, he's going to have to practice. Yeah. I hope that he looks at, you know, what I would call game film. I'm sure that Hillary's looking at them while she's on the bus or on the plane and thinking, okay, I can't have an opening statement like that before. She really really hit her stride when she brought in her dad, the drape maker, Mm -hmm. and how he would probably be a person who would be stiffed, such as all those other people who were stiffed when uh, Trump was building Mar-a-Lago. So, you know, bringing in the personal, bringing in I've talked to a voter, bringing in a human example that people can relate to is very important. Trump doesn't really talk to anybody except for himself and maybe his advisors. So he doesn't have those examples. As a result, there was a a very, very stark contrast in I, 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 me, 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 I'll do a good job, I'm great, I'm smarter than everybody else. So I don't know if someone can change. I mean, people don't change, Scott. Yeah, that's true. You know, you can practice and you can practice, but if I hit that one thing that tweaks you, you know, with all cameras on you and there's no let-up, then, you know, still you may, A, fall for it, B, get rattled, and I think that if you are not solid in your positions and you don't know your points and you don't know your facts, that this eventually will have to catch up with you. Did he do anything right? You know, he did at the outset. I have to say that he did. You know, she had this long-winded opening, and everybody was like, you know, I had my hands over my head on that one. And then he just sort of came on as the everyman speaking very plain language. And when he was on that, and when he was articulate, and when he wasn't rattled, he actually did a pretty good job. But the problem is, and let's talk about stamina for a minute, he accused her of not having stamina. Mm-hmm. You know, he did not have stamina. He looked I think like he, he was ready to lie down after the debate, and she goes off to give a speech. Absolutely. I mean, he, he looked tired. He looked uh, that he was out of sorts. He, he was panting at one point. Um, he, he, you could tell he had dry mouth. He, he was having a hard time. 
And let's talk about Block and Bridge for a minute. So Lester Holt asked Trump, he says, okay, uh, you have mentioned something about that she doesn't look like a presidential candidate. What yeah. did you mean by that? Yeah. So Trump, who may have listened to one thing one of his handlers have said, said, okay, move on to that and segue into this. But his segues are clumsy. It looks like he's grasping. Mm-hmm. If he had practiced, he would able to be able to segue in ways that would make sense to the viewer. So he went from, quote-unquote, beauty to stamina. And that just left a huge gaping hole for her to step right in, where she said, well, let's talk about stamina. I'd like to see you visit 118 countries and and stop and, you know, um, settle ceasefires and get policies and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And not to mention, you know, 18 hours in front of a, you know, a prosecution. So, you know, she's smart enough to be able to come back to those things. But the interrupting and the general sort of boorishness of his attitude was offensive, not just to me, but I think to even to many people who are still very undecided. Was the moderator strong enough? Did he do enough oh, to inter- one, Scott, to keep to know, keep him under control? Lester Holt is taking a beating yeah. this morning, yeah. and I kind of feel bad. There were times when he kept saying, "Okay, Lester, I want to finish. I want to finish." You know, being a moderator, you have your questions. Many of these questions were sort of skewed anti-Trump. I will say that. So I'm sure you know the Republicans are all over that this morning. However, you know there is at a point in in the debate you try and develop a cadence where it creates excitement, where the narratives get out, and where you get a sense of the candidate. And knowing when to stop and when to start is a really tough thing. Hmm. Now, I'm sure he's got that, you know, a time clock sitting right in front of him so he knows how long, especially when you say the candidate has two minutes, the candidate has two minutes. So imagine being in front of these two candidates. You know, it's all sorts of bombast is going on. Plus, you've got your floor directors looking at you with the big wrap-up sign with their fingers, you know, going in a circle. And you're trying to manage all that. And that is tough, tough, tough if you've never done it. Is that an excuse for Lester Holt? Well, you know, it might be. But I really, in the past couple years of all the debates that have gone on, I really haven't seen a really great moderator, either well, you, on this side of the border or on the other. You know what? You either allow them the leeway or you don't. And if you allow them the leeway, you get what you get. If you don't allow them the leeway, you just simply eh, move on. Sorry. Well, you know, well, you, shut you know, them off. that's true. That's yeah. true. But then again, you know, if you're going to do the eh, thing, you know, who you have to offer that to, for equal time. Absolutely. And so that would have been a lot on the Trump side. You know, be quiet. We need to move on. But he did actually um, admonish uh, Hillary at one point. And the other thing that was interesting is that during the debate, you know, Trump said something, and I can't remember what it was, and to great adulation from the audience. Yeah. And you heard them cheer, and I'm thinking, whoa, 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 this is the debate. Where's yeah. the cheering coming from? And to Lester Holt's credit, he did say, I warned the audience, I need to tell you again, that we do not want you to participate in the debate. You know what? There should not even be audiences in those sorts of things. Simple as that. That will solve the problem. Alyssa, we're out of time. Thanks uh, very much. As always, Alyssa Freeman been with us. Alyssa, uh, PR Communications. Thank you very much. As always, we'll chat again. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, do we have that? Uh, let's play that second clip on Trump. You got that one handy, Jacob? Let that one roll. Well, I have much better judgment than she does. There's no question about that. I also have a much better temperament than she has. You know, I have a much better. She spent, let me tell you, she spent hundreds of millions of dollars on 
an advertising, you know, they get Madison Avenue into a room, they put an in- temperament. Let's go after. I think my strongest asset, maybe by far, is my temperament. I have a winning temperament. I know how to win. All right. Uh, let's talk. Uh, here, here's a clip of Hillary. And uh, let's play the one about uh, wanting to invest in you. We have to build an economy that works for everyone, not just those at the top. That means we need new jobs, good jobs, with rising incomes. I want us to invest in you. Uh, it's interesting, and I, you know, I think there's a good example of exactly uh, why most are saying that Donald Trump uh, didn't fare too well in last night's debate. And again, this was something that I think most predicted. I certainly did uh, long before we got to the debates. And this was a favorite question to ask political science professors and experts and pundits all around was, how do you think these two are going to fare off during a debate? And again, I thought Hillary having the experience in the background that she does will be well prepared and Donald will have to do more than just give one word or one sentence or make America great again. It's going to be beautiful. Those types of answers. You've got to get into depth during a 90 minute debate. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, she simply killed him with content. To talk more about all of this, James Campbell is with us, distinguished professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Buffalo. A new book, Polarized, Making Sense of a Divided America. And he is with us now. Good afternoon, James. How are you today? Very good. How are you doing? Good. Thanks very much for taking the time. We greatly appreciate this. So what were your thoughts on the debate last night? Well, I thought there were uh, basically two debates. Uh, the first part uh, of the debate was much more substantive, uh, exchanges about uh, the economy and uh, trade policy and, uh, and uh, you know, the economy overall. And I thought uh, Trump did very well on, on, on that score. Um, I think he uh, made the case that trade, the trade deal was, uh, trade deals, particularly NAFTA, uh, had not helped the economy, and uh, we lost a lot of jobs as a result of that. And that uh, Clinton uh, had been uh, supportive of those, including the uh, calling the, uh, the, the proposed uh, TTP. Uh, 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 deal uh, the gold standard uh the second part of the debate i think has to go to clinton um i think uh it turned uh, you know somewhat uh, less substantive uh, more directed at uh, questions about uh, trump personally uh his bankruptcies the irs uh, returns uh, the birther issue and uh, and so and so forth the uh, and i think on, on that he uh, the the when he uh, when or if he opposed the Iraq war and so forth. I think on, on those, uh, he lost ground. He sort of uh, went off the rails, and I think uh, that uh, favored Clinton. Most, uh, lots have said similar to what you have said in the sense that he, he was holding his own and he was doing well at the beginning, but then it kind of went off the rails uh, at the halfway point. What happened? How did that happen? What did he do wrong? Well, I think this is where experience uh, in debates comes into play, and also uh, his personality. You know, he uh, is uh, something of an attack dog, and uh, he's not disciplined about when to attack and when to back off. And I thought there was a classic comparison here when when uh, Clinton was uh, Secretary Clinton was uh, challenged uh, on her emails early on, and, and, and there wasn't much of a discussion of that. But when she was was challenged on it. She said she apologized. Yeah, and it was sort of, oops, the issue's gone, and uh, 
and when, whereas when uh, Trump is, was challenged on the IRS uh, issues, bankruptcies, uh, the Iraq War, with the Iraq War issue, I, th- I thought it was kind of cringing uh, material. When he, you know, said, you know everybody's got to get in touch with Sean Hannity, and you know, yeah. and, you know, and, and and rather than put, you know, cut rather than cut his losses, he. Um, uh, directed more attention at those issues. I and mean, it was just the opposite with Clinton. Clinton said, okay, the emails, I'm, I'm going to lose. There's no way on earth I can, can win on this email issue. Just cut the losses. I apologize. Let's move on. Whereas Trump uh, belabored it. Uh, his, his, uh, his problems, he um, dragged them on, including uh, trying to drag uh, Clinton's uh, 2008 campaign into uh, uh, the birther issue is, you know, su- suggesting or indicating, or claiming that uh, that uh, the, the Clinton campaign back in 2008 had raised the issue first. Mm-hmm. Uh, was there any way for him to get out of that gracefully, considering he had dragged it out for so long? Uh, and then, of course, it, it 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 spills over to the debate. Or should he have just done what Hillary uh, did previously in regard to the emails and just uh, admit it, eat it, and go on? I, I think he could just say, "Listen, this—we've got more important things to talk about. Things that actually affect people's lives. Yeah. Uh, the economy and security uh, are two things that Americans really care about. This birther issue is over. The question's been answered. Let's move." And I think that's the way to deal with it. You know, rather than you know relitigating the whole thing. Was he prepared? He just, yeah. Uh, He's as prepared as he ever is. I think. <laughs> I think you have two very different styles, and yeah. so what you have in Clinton is somebody who is uh, somebody who prepares, probably over prepares. And I mean, the, and the charge, sort of the downside of that is a lot of people think that she's they're not getting the authentic mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton; that they're getting something that's been so so vetted and focus grouped that, uh, you know, who knows what you're really getting there. Mm-hmm. Whereas Trump just, you know, it's sort of stream of consciousness. I mean, it is whatever comes out, comes out. And because of that, he, I mean, you are seeing the real Donald Trump, but you're seeing him warts and all. Um, and, I, and that's a problem in the, other, in the other direction. It's amazing that when we're, when we're watching coverage of this stuff, that they actually have a person assigned to fact-checking. Because wasn't there a time when we just assumed that we didn't have to check these facts? Now it, it's well, a, it, there's a full-time person on a board just checking facts. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm a little skeptical of the fact-checkers myself. I think, this is, uh, I think somebody needs to fact-check the fact-checkers. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of these are, 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 aren't so clear-cut answers. And yeah. when you read the... Uh, you read the Washington Post or the New York Times or whoever's doing it. The, you know they, they they bury a lot of their own uh, somewhat subjective uh, analysis into that. So um, I, I'm you know I, I'm I'm not even sure it should be called fact checking anymore. You know one thing I should say, but I thought Trump was you know he's he's taken a lot of lumps for this, but for the debate, but I, I think he, you know, he was surprising in, in the first part of the debate. For, for instance, uh, taking on the uh, Federal Reserve Board for um, what he regarded as a, as a sort of partisan uh, um, boosting of the, the economy, that is, you know, we 
creating essentially another bubble that will burst at some point with uh, seven years plus of uh, you know ridiculously low uh, interest rates. Um, and that I think uh, you know you deserve some credit for that point. Let me let me interrupt you there, James, because uh, sure. you, you bring up a valid point. But does he go deep enough on those issues to really, I guess, convince the public that he knows what he's talking about, or is he just dropping stuff, just dropping names, just dropping issues without going into enough enough depth to prove his point? I really think he went, he went on that issue and a couple of the others on the trade deal issues. You know, talking about, mm-hmm. for instance. Uh, uh, Mexico's, uh, you know, the, the the fact that uh, the VAT tax, explaining really to to um, even to Lester Holt, um, uh, you know, why uh, these deals had been um, you know, lopsided. Uh, that that uh, so I think he gets into enough of the of the detail. I mean, you, and and all of these things. I think we learned way back in. Jimmy Carter's days, if, if you just swamp people with details, yeah. um, you know, you're not getting anywhere. Um, you, you, you end up, you know, maybe creating the impression that you know what you're talking about, right. but probably uh, more, more likely just confusing people. I mean, well, I think what we have is, uh, as the title of my book suggests, we have a very polarized country. Yeah. And, and if, if Trump can be seen as the conservative alternative to Clinton's liberal uh, um, position, and they, and at least on the economy and other matters, they took fairly conventional liberal and conservative positions. Then I think it should be clear enough for a lot of voters uh, which which uh, side they should be uh, moving to. Why do why is politics so divisive right now? It seems we're we're living in a world of extremes. You're either this or you're that. There's no happy right. medium. There's no middle ground. Why is that? Well, there is some middle ground. It's about about forty uh, something percent of Americans are call themselves moderates, um, and the rest are either liberals or conservatives. And the, now the parties have realigned over time, so that they're more clearly the home of you know the Republican is the home of conservatives, and mm-hmm. um, the Democrats are home for liberals. And the parties depend a lot more on those ideological bases for their for their support. So I, I, you know, and those are the people you can, you uh, will turn out to vote, and you have to make sure that they're happy uh, in doing so. Which so creates the extreme. Uh, well, yes, I mean, you know, we are the the parties are extreme because the public is more extreme. Yeah, hmm. yeah, and I think that's you know, and and um, and, and they're more consistent uh, in their taking liberal positions or conservative positions. So. And I think that's that's um, really the nature of, of uh, American politics these days that it's just sorted sorted itself out uh, in that that way. But the way we used to be was really more the anomaly, and you know that you'd have liberals in the Republican Party and conservatives in the Democratic Party, and that was sort of unnatural in a sense. You know, they weren't uh, along with like-minded people, mm-hmm. and um, that was. Sort of unusual because of the uh, the the, the, uh, the fact that Republican there was no Republican Party in the South in Southern states, and that goes way back to the days of Reconstruction after yeah. the Civil War. So, so we got we've, we've sort of sorted ourselves. We've simplified American politics, but in simplifying it, we've also highlighted the extreme alternatives. 
Are you surprised by the amount of people or the coverage that this debate got? I mean, they were talking about Super Bowl numbers yesterday. In most cases, you can't get, certainly up here, people involved in politics. Now they're watching this thing as if it's a, a pay-per-view show. <laughs> it, it isn't. Well, I mean, Trump uh, adds to that, I think. Uh, you know, he's a very controversial character, but so does so is, uh, Secretary Clinton. Uh, and, you, and the stakes are high. Uh, when you have such a stark uh, difference in uh, political outlooks. And uh, I think, you know, t- uh, Trump went off the rail at the end of the, uh, of, of the debate in a lot of ways, but I think in the, the first part he basically established himself as a, as a conservative, as the conservative alternative. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, that sets things up for debate number two, uh, who are coming right up. Uh, before, before, I'm going to ask you what he has to do to, to, to improve with debate number two, but let's go back to uh, his uh, preparedness. And because right. lots are talking about how he was, he, he was not prepared. Uh, it sounds like you're not so convinced about that. Um, right. is, it the, is it the debate, he's, the art of debating he's not prepared in, or is it the issues he's not prepared in? Well, he's probably not as deep as he should be on issues. Um, but again, I'm not so sure that's all that important when you know you when you uh, you know when you when you take office. I mean, you're not governing alone. Uh, I think it, it. I think the the more important uh, lack of uh, preparedness is in sticking to the message. Mm-hmm. You know, campaigns really should be about uh, giving voters a reason to vote for you as opposed to your alternative the the uh, your opposing candidate and he did that early on when he when he said that you know that uh, you know secretary clinton has been in public life now for you know 25 years or so and if she had uh, you know if she has the answers then why haven't they already been implemented and and if her answers were implemented then they haven't been successful so i mean that's 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 clinton's uh, achilles Right. Um, in this race, and I think that's what he has to focus on. If this race, this election, becomes a, 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 a re- retrospective uh, referendum on the state of the country, then I think uh, Trump uh, is advantaged. If it becomes a referendum on Donald Trump, then Clinton is advantaged. I... That's why I think the first part which was somewhat more substantive, right. uh, probably went to Trump, and the second part went to Clinton. Uh, he, he says, to me, he still speaks in 15-second sound bites, and I'm not sure you can get away with that in a debate format. Uh, he kept saying, we're going to fix it, going back to his, his, his lines during the primaries. We're going to make America great again. It's going to be beautiful. Uh, he just throws axes on, you know, policy or at policy that he, he can point at to not going well. But he doesn't right. really have a solution. Can you get away with that for any length of time? Well, I think as long as he outlines the, the basic um, the, the basic at, uh outlines of his solution. I think, for, for instance, on trade deals, he's arguing that he would uh, negotiate uh, stronger trade deals that, uh, that uh, you know, and what, not, what does that mean, stronger mean? I mean, obviously, that where, where there would not be incentives for American uh, or U.S. companies to move out of the country. Uh, that would be uh, a starting point. So I think he has enough there. Um, 
And again, that's a, sort of an advantage of being um, the the out party. Yeah. Uh, you know, you 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 can point to the problems and say, well, that's not good enough. You know, the yeah. solutions that you've proposed uh, has still left the country in bad shape, both domestically and uh, internationally. And you've had your chance. And you haven't succeeded, so it's time for change. I mean, we saw that in 2008 with the that's you know key to uh, Barack Obama's uh, uh, election in that in that year. Do you think that's what will happen for round two for the second debate? What does he have to do to move forward? Does he have to stick to a mantra of change, uh, change perhaps, as you just mentioned, and just keep hammering that home? I think so. I mean, that's the, that should be the message um, for his campaign. That is. Um, the the establishment uh, has not left the country in good shape. Hillary Clinton is part of that establishment, has been an important part of that establishment. She's not, she hasn't got the job done. And so it's time to try something different. And uh, we want to go back to more, uh, more conservative uh, policies to get to, for peace and prosperity, you know that's 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 the, that should be the key, and that's the key. That's the kind of a message I think that could win over centrist voters as well as conservatives. So, will this be a protest vote for Americans? Do you think uh, maybe holding their nose and voting the other way for change, uh, or, or are they going? Or are they going to study what Donald is presenting and and say, you know, that's 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 uh, substantial policy? Well, I I, I think. Uh, you know, we, we know we have two candidates that a majority of Americans, uh, American voters, find uh, to be unfavorable, have a, a unfavorable yeah. opinions of. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to, a lot of a lot of voters are going to the polls um, and holding their nose. Now, the real question here beyond that is uh, how many people will vote? We know that, you know, people don't like to do things that are unpleasant and if they can avoid it. And so if it's going to be unpleasant for people to, uh, to, to, to vote for either Clinton or, um, or, or Trump, then they may simply decide to take a walk and not, uh, not vote. So Wait, are you this, an- is, this is going to be crucial to see. The turnout is going to be crucial in this election. Are you anticipating a low turnout, especially after we've seen this much interest in the campaign itself? Well... I'm, I, I really that's like getting dressed up and not going to the party <laughs> I know I know this is this is very interesting because I had anticipated a high turnout because the nation is so polarized yeah uh, but you know for people in the middle this is very disconcerting yeah and I saw a Gallup study a Gallup poll um, finding um, just in the last day or two that said that there are fewer people uh, saying that they will definitely vote in this election than than was the case in the past, in, than in any of the, the previous four presidential elections. So that suggests that, you know, at least at this point, um, you know, people haven't, uh, of course that may be because people, there's still a lot of people who are undecided uh, uh, about, uh, about the two candidates. You know, it, it's, it's the uh, one evil over the other. So will we see postponing that bad <laughs> Will we see? Will we see just as much hype and interest in the second debate? Will there be as many viewers in the second debate, or will everyone say, "Now nah, we've seen this show"? 
Oh, I, I expect that it will be very, a very strong um, audience, very, a very large audience for, yeah. for this because this is. Uh, It'll just keep building. This is like the, this is like the old Ali Frazier fight. Yeah, the, this is, this is, these are two heavyweights. Um, they, they don't need, neither of them have a large fan base, uh, but uh, they, they, they are. Uh, that's the the game uh and so we it's going to be one of the two of them and um and you know people are uh people are either repelled uh by one or by the other so uh they're, they're going to be watching very closely i'm sure how do you think each candidate is feeling this morning well i you know i'm sure both uh both of them see the opportunities that they missed and you know my guess is they both regret not uh, picking up on uh, different vulnerabilities. My guess is probably Clinton feels feels a little better about it than than Trump. But you know, Trump missed a, a lot of uh, a lot of possibilities. I mean, the whole second part of the debate seemed to be involved involving issues relating to him personally. And you could have done the same. Could have imagined the same kind of de- debate with all those being Clinton personal mm-hmm. issues. And you know the. The Wall Street speeches and more about the emails and Benghazi and you know. The, I mean, so you think there's going to be a, mud, a lot more mudslinging for the second one? Oh, that, it, well, I'm not I'm not sure mudslinging is right. It'll be it'll be rough. Let me put it that way. It'll be rough. And I and I don't you know that's one thing. I mean, I think a lot of Republicans were upset over the last couple of elections that uh, you know Mitt Romney and uh, John McCain were by by many estimates were kind of too nice they were they were nice guys yeah. well that's not Trump Trump is going to be a bulldog in this and uh, and so we're, we're, you can expect a, a rough uh, now the question is whether he can be controlled about it hmm good you point know, I mean, and whether he can be disciplined if he can be disciplined and just bore in on that, uh, the idea that Clinton's been around forever and she hasn't uh, really uh, made the country, uh, left the country in, uh, in, in good enough shape, I think then that uh, helps his candidacy. If he gets diverted to, you know, talking about his income taxes or bankruptcies or, you know, uh, what he said about a Miss Universe or something, then, then he's, uh, he's going to be in trouble. James Campbell has been with us, distinguished professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Buffalo. The latest book, Polarized, Making Sense of a Divided America. James, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. We'll call again. Okay, terrific. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Now, are you ready for this? This is up there with petitions and by-election losses and rebates. Let's give you a little uh, recap here. Now, I think this all started with uh, the Liberals losing their Scarborough by-election. The number one issue turned out not to be sex ed, but how much people were paying for their soaring electricity bills. Uh, All of a sudden, Premier Wynne said, uh, the bubble is broke. I'm now aware of what you are saying. I can now hear you clearly. And that something has to be done. So then she promised a rebate, which was giving us back the provincial portion of the HST on our electricity bill. Uh, To which the energy minister said, and we had him on this show saying it, he said, the more that the rates go up, the more that you will save. 
at the end of the day, um, whatever your total electricity cost is going to be, it will have an 8% reduction. So if it grows, um, then, you know, so will that reduction. So will that rebate. If it grows? If it grows? You mean when? When the next scheduled increase is coming, and I think it's November. So, yes, I mean, this guy should be working for Walmart. As the price goes up for electricity, so do your savings. Oh, my, I feel much better now. Then a petition, a petition on the Liberal website saying petition for lower electricity rates. Petition who? They're the people increasing the electricity rates. It's their deal. It's their bag. Who are you? Are you sending a petition to yourself? Now, the ultimate flip-flop. The ultimate flip-flop. Now, guess what? It turns out we don't need all of this electricity. We don't need it all. We don't need all of our electricity. So, we're going to flip-flop. And we're going to, as the Canadian press says in their headline, cancel future green energy plans. You're going to what? Well, we're going to cancel future green energy plans. But I thought you were going to do this. No, it turns out that's not the case. And they're going to save up to $3.8 billion in costs from the original 2013 long-term plan. What does that mean to you? What does this flip-flop mean to you? Well, you're going to save another, are you ready? Wait for it. $2.45. It's going to stop that from being added to your hydro bills a month. Apparently, we now have, we didn't even realize this. Just like the premier didn't realize you're upset about your electricity rates, they didn't realize that they have a robust supply of electricity for the next decade. And they don't need the additional power that they had planned to purchase. Wait a sec. What about all this environmental stuff? What about saving the environment? What about creating sustainable energy and selling it to everybody else? What about losing that Scarborough by-election? Honestly, I cannot believe it. I cannot believe it. But I'm happy. Until we get into the weeds. Is this everything we think it is? Is this the government finally realizing they've got to pull back? It's not like we're anti-green. Everybody's green now. Show me someone that's not. Everyone's green. It's just that we overpaid for this by $37 billion, says the Auditor General. Let's bring in Dr. Ross McKittrick. He is a professor of economics and CBE fellow in Sustainable Commerce, Department of Economics with the fi- it, with, and Finance with the University of Guelph and is with us now. Hello, Ross. How are you today? I'm okay, thanks. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. So what are your thoughts on this latest announcement from the government? Well, for years, uh, some of us have been pointing out that the green energy projects uh, are driving up electricity costs, and it's electricity that we don't need. And the government's response has always been, we need to make these investments, and by the way, this is going to save us money, and we're going to create jobs, and it's going to be great for the province. And so today's announcement just uh, indicates that either they really believed that back then, and then they were just completely misguided, 
or they didn't believe it and they were just misleading people and it was propaganda. But either way, they've admitted that their strategy for the past five to ten years has, has really been wrong-headed, and uh, they're slowly starting to change direction. All they're doing, in effect, they've got us in a hole, and they've said they're going to slow down the rate of digging, but um, it's still going to be a ways before we're actually talking about any solutions to high electricity prices. What happened to creating jobs? That's what this was all about. We were going to be a leader in, in renewable energy. Uh, all of a sudden, now we just realized we have a, a robust supply of power? Uh, well, um, to, as far as creating jobs, what you'll see in the aftermath of this announcement is that the handful of, of factories that opened up to um, take advantage of the green energy subsidies, they'll be gone. They were here for the subsidies. Those are not sustainable jobs. Those are never profitable businesses. So they didn't actually create any jobs. They were just um, buying some subsidized uh, factories uh, out there. And um, meanwhile, the, the rising electricity prices, though, that's been a factor in causing other sectors to slow down. And I think at some level, it's, it's finally reached the, the Premier's office that these high electricity prices really are having a negative impact on the province's employment prospects. Is this an admission that this program has, was faulty? Um, yeah, it's, you know, it, it's an admission of the obvious. Uh, the, the numbers are always clear that we, uh, we produce too much electricity uh, through the, the green energy grid that we can't use. We dump it at a massive loss on New York State and other external jurisdictions. That's been clear for a long time. It's been clear that overpaying for electricity, as we do uh, with the wind and solar contracts, can't possibly benefit the province. Um, what's odd to me, I guess, is that the numbers were so clear two, three years ago, and, and even before that, it took a by-election loss for the, the Premier to, to finally admit what was obvious to everyone else. And I think that's very sad in, in the end. You don't have rational thinkers in the government. They're just concerned with uh, a by-election loss and, and sinking poll numbers. It shouldn't be like that. It seems that she was just pushing this until people got to a breaking point and then, okay, we'll stop. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting if, if however many couple of thousand voters in the by-election had swung the other way, they wouldn't have done any of this. They would still, the, the bubble would be intact and they wouldn't be offering any relief. But so why is it in the government's best, so why is it in the be- government's best interest, Ross, to, to continue down this path? Why did they keep shoveling money into this? Um, I mean, sooner or later it was going to come back to bite them, No. Yeah, well, when I've done speaking at the university and in other groups where I show the numbers on the Ontario electricity system, there doesn't seem to be anyone, once they've seen the reality, I can't find anyone who's still enthusiastic about it. it uh, you just get down to a core group of true believers uh, in, at the core of, of Queen's Park, and um, they just were not interested up, uh, up till very recently in looking at the damage this was doing. They had a... a, a green agenda in mind, and they were going to pursue it come hell or high water. And I guess high water came. Hmm. So how do you fix it now, Ross? What can they do now? Do you just shut off the tap? Uh, well, this is a, a big challenge for them. Um, they're, they're going to have to start to seriously unravel some of the policies that they've, they've been pursuing and really trying to uh, identify themselves with. 
they have to look at canceling some of the long-term contracts that they've signed with the high-cost renewables providers. I mean, uh, this this fund called the Global Adjustment, that's where the big increases are coming on, on your power bills, the monthly global adjustment charge. And a lot of that money goes to cover the cost of these um, above-market power rates uh, that they've signed on for 20 years with, with some of the big companies. And they're going to have to look at how to get out of those contracts. Will this end up costing us? Uh, some of the costs may end up transferred to the taxpayer if, for instance, if they rip up some contracts and, and they they don't do a careful job on the legal side, they could get sued. And then, yeah, you'd have settlements that, that get transferred to the taxpayers. Hopefully, uh, though, what they're going to do is start looking at how to get uh, the cost in the electricity system down and, and get rates down. But I don't actually think this government has the stomach to, to do it cause, just because of how deeply they've embedded themselves in the policies that drove up rates in the first place. And, and I mean, we'll see, but uh, they would have to be willing to admit a lot of mistakes in order to uh, really change direction. There's certainly been a lot of spin put on all of this uh, by government. And and now, just recently after that by-election loss, uh, admitting Premier Kathleen Wynne coming out and saying, uh, you know, people are, are we're realizing people are upset with this, which of course is something that they've been saying for years, uh, that didn't play very well. Lot said too little, too late. Now the en- energy minister, after saying on our show that, as you heard, as rates go up, so do your savings. Now all of a sudden he's saying, oh, guess what? We have enough power. Like you just don't hear about these complaints after a by-election law, uh, loss and you just don't all of a sudden realize, oh, we're full. We don't need any more. I mean, these just don't happen. Things like this just don't happen overnight. How is this going to play in the public? Uh, well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, uh, going back a couple of years, I thought people would be able to see where this was headed. The, the uh, first stirrings of power price increases started at least five years ago, but it really did take um, the reality that hit over the past year um, to uh, to for the public to, to catch on to what was going on. Um, I am no expert on, on Ontario political opinion here, but to me it looks bad for the government because, in effect, they're admitting they've made a huge mistake, and they're now taking a big step that's embarrassing politically, but it won't actually bring power rates down. Uh, all this does, like I said, it, it, it slows down the digging, but it doesn't actually get us out of the hole. What will it take to get us out of the hole? Well, like I say, one of the big things is they have to look at canceling some of these long-term supply contracts. I mean, they they signed contracts for wind energy for 20 years at 13.5 cents a kilowatt hour when the wholesale price is 3 cents a kilowatt hour, and it's those kinds of cost differences that you're paying with these surcharges on, on, on your bill. Um, that's one of them. Some of it, though, um, the distribution system they've been building in part to try to accommodate all these little wind turbine sources around the province. That's that's a big cost driver. I mean, there's a long list of things that they got into that have driven up the costs. And um, you, some of them they can back out of, um, but it's going to take um, willingness on their part to admit even more mistakes. These policies got this government a majority. I mean, we all sort of knew what we were getting into before we they they got back in with another majority. Uh, we, we all are well aware of what the schedule of, of price increases uh, are. 
Uh, are we all of a sudden now breathing the reality and changing our minds about a green Ontario, or is this less about being green and more about managing our money? Well, you know, that's an interesting angle because up until now, the rhetoric was really cloaked in the, in the green mantle. So if you're a good person, then yeah. you'll, you'll support this. Um, the green side of it was always a complete smokescreen. I mean, this didn't have any real effect on air quality. That's We've had a long-term trend going back to the late 1980s towards lower air pollution, but that's got far more to do with things like uh, catalytic converters on our cars and and uh, scrubbers and smokestacks and wind turbines, which just were a, a very, very minor player in the whole thing. So the whole green rhetoric uh, was was just a, a bit of a, a feel-good cover. And unfortunately, though, it worked in the sense that a lot of people thought, well, I guess I'm a, I want to think of myself as a good person, so I better support this. I don't want to look like, you know, some um, dirty old uh, coal-loving uh, troglodyte here, so <clears throat> I'm going to support the the initiative. But they also weren't uh, weren't clear with people about what it would cost. They, they kept saying this is going to create jobs, it's going to be this new technology that will give us lots of inexpensive electricity, and uh, that's where I think the government should shoulder the blame for not being clear with people about what the effects were going to be. Where does this leave liberal finances? Because, of course, they were using green to generate a lot of revenue. Now people are starting to kick back on that. So how does this leave their plans going forward? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting when I, I, when I mentioned that they haven't stopped digging. They're, they're just slowing it down because another big shovel in their hands is the cap-and-trade plan that... Um, when they announce they're going to drop the uh, or rebate the HST portion of um, electricity bills, but they're still going to introduce the cap and trade charge, which yeah. is even larger than uh, the HST portion. So the, this green program is still there, and it's still going to lead to higher electricity prices. So um, to me, all they've done right now is, is they've kind of buckled on the most obvious point of all, which is why build more capacity when all we do is give it away at a huge loss on the export market. Like that when it seems even this government was able to figure out, okay, that actually doesn't make sense. Let's not do that. But there's still more uh, surprises coming. And um, uh, how that plays out with the public, well, I, I guess it's going to play a little differently now than it has in the last few years. Will the public say, well, uh, you know, they've stopped these other, uh, uh, they, they've stopped digging or slowed down the rate of digging, as you put it. Um, so I'm more uh, likely to accept cap and trade, uh, or is that wishful thinking? Well, uh, we'll see. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not very good at predicting how people will react to these things. Um, Sometimes it just comes down to um, people are very busy. I mean, I I study this stuff for a living. I'm 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 in it, immersed in it all day, so I can see what's going on. But most people they they don't have time. They're busy. You know, um, it's only when something happens that's really in front of them. So their power bill is going up. This this year has been right. a big one, and. I think now that that's got people's attention, maybe they will start to ask, okay, what exactly are we getting for all this pain? And the answer is you don't actually get anything. I mean, uh, That being said, and we've, we've only got about 30 seconds left here, Ross, but uh, they will constantly say, the Liberal government, that uh, they got rid of coal and they've stopped the brownouts. This is the cost of all of that. 
And the, the problem there is they could have got the same benefits at a fraction of the cost if they hadn't gone the green energy route. There were other options open to them that would have, like I say, a fraction of the cost. They, they don't get to claim uh, that it was all worthwhile. Dr. Ross McKittrick has been with us, Professor of Economics and CBE Fellow in Sustainable Commerce, Department of Economics and Finance with the University of Guelph. Ross, as always, thanks for the time and expertise. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Have a good day. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.